The reading for today's sermon will come from Obadiah. It will be verses 15 through 21. Hear now God's word. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Will you pray with me today? Father God, again, as we come to your word, we recognize the need of your help. And so we pray, give us this help and help us to understand. Holy Spirit, be with us to illuminate the meaning of your word this morning and to impress its importance and significance upon our hearts that we might not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Father, use your holy word, your living, active, God-breathed word to continue to transform us by renewing our minds according to all that is true and right and just and holy that is revealed to us here about your character and your nature and your purposes and your plans. And so, Father, would you work to encourage us, to strengthen us, to convict us, to challenge us, to grow us, to wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts upon your holy word this morning be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're coming to the closing verses of the book of Obadiah after having studied it together for the past two weeks. And as we come to look at the closing seven verses of this book, my prayer is that as we come to terms with the three main themes that we've seen God reveal in the book of Obadiah, that our big takeaway as we live our lives in this world that's full of darkness and chaos and tribulation 
that our big takeaway from what God reveals in His Word in Obadiah will be hope. Hope. In English, that word hope can mean to wish for something. And in that sense, the idea of hope and the way that people often talk about hope and use the word hope and think of the idea of hope, it can, it can often carry a, a tone of uncertainty with it. Kind of a hypothetical or, or skeptical kind of hope. I hope something's going to happen, but I really don't have much confidence in it. That's how people often use the word hope, almost cynically, skeptically, uncertainly, especially when the foundation of hope is uncertain or shaky or, or unreliable. People put their hope in things that keep failing them and letting them down, then, then they don't have much hope in hope itself. Solomon teaches us, doesn't he, in the book of Ecclesiastes, that, that everything that is under the sun, that means everything that is created, every part of this world that we live in, is an unreliable foundation for ultimate hope because none of it lasts, does it? None of it lasts. All of it's, all of it's like vapor. All of it's here today but gone tomorrow because it's all a part of the creation that has been subjected to decay because of the curse of sin in this world. And so the more and more that people in this world realize just by experience that the eternity that God has set in all of our hearts longs for a hope that nothing in this decaying world can give, then the more uncertainly and hypothetically and cynically they talk about hope itself, at least in any kind of ultimate sense. The, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche the 19th century philosopher, he went so far as to say this. He says, in reality, hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Most people aren't that cynical, thankfully. But it is true, isn't it, that hope can be pretty elusive for people in this world where, where sorrow and suffering and disappointment are constant realities so long as they keep trying to anchor ultimate hope, lasting hope, permanent hope to things of this sin-cursed, decaying world that by definition cannot last. On the other hand, Obadiah, who, remember, was living and experiencing firsthand the very, the very palpable darkness and sorrow and suffering that that is so often a, an intrinsic part of life in this world as the Babylonians and the Edomites had conspired together to invade Jerusalem and enslave the people of Judah and plunder the city and destroy the temple. Obadiah, living through all of that sorrow and suffering, Obadiah didn't anchor his hope to anything in this world, but, but he anchored it to God's Word and to what God reveals to us about God's nature. We saw, first of all, two weeks ago, as the one who is sovereign and faithful and good. And then, what we saw last week, he anchors his hope to God's justice. 
God will make right everything that is wrong in this world. And today, He wants to anchor our hope also to God's ultimate purposes for the future of His people and for the future of this whole world. So Obadiah's goal, God's goal through Obadiah, is to get our eyes off of ourselves. To get our eyes off of our circumstances. To get our eyes ultimately off of, off of the things that make us sorrowful in this world and that we suffer in this world and keep our eyes fixed on our God who is almighty, who is sovereign, who is faithful, who is good, who is the judge of the whole earth, who is the one who will make right everything that is wrong in this world and who promises a glorious and eternal future to all those who put their hope and their trust in him. So we've looked at the first of the two main messages of Obadiah already, the sovereign goodness of God, the holy justice of God. Today, in these closing verses, Obadiah shifts our focus to the future and reminds us that God isn't just sovereign and just over the Edomites in that time and in that place where Obadiah was writing. He's sovereign over all the nations. He's just and the judge of the whole earth. And in his sovereign justice, he is moving all of history towards the grand culmination of all of his purposes and work in the world, which is this. It's his final triumph over all wickedness and all rebellion and all darkness and all decay in this world on the day that he calls the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord in verse 15 which is the day when the kingdom, or remember the kingship, over all of creation will be the Lord's, as verse 21 proclaims. And in these verses, Obadiah is teaching us two massively important truths. So here's your basic outline. It's only two points. And these two truths are the source of a great and abiding an ultimate hope that God's people can have no matter what's going on in this world or in our lives or in our bodies as we live in this world. First, on the coming day of the Lord, God Himself will triumph over all His enemies. Verses 15 and 16 proclaim. And then secondly, in the rest of the book, verses 17 to 21, on that coming day of the Lord, Not only is he going to triumph over all of his enemies, he's going to deliver all of his people so that all of the enemies of God will be ultimately and eternally defeated and all of the people of God will be ultimately and eternally saved and delivered. That's the simple outline of the rest of the book of Obadiah. So look at verse 15 with me. Verses verses 15 and 16. Remember that so far, Obadiah has spoken of the absolute certainty of God's judgment against the nation of Edom. And now he's expanding that certainty beyond Edom to the whole world and all of history, all the nations of the world. For the day of the Lord is near upon not just Edom, but all the nations. Now that statement in verse 15 was made about 600 years before Christ was born. 
almost 3,000 years ago from our time. And so based on that word near there in verse 15, right? The day of the Lord is near upon all of the nations. Obadiah and, and everybody who was listening to the word of God that Obadiah was proclaiming back then, they would have very understandably expected, they would have hoped that this day of the Lord where ultimate judgment was going to fall on all the nations and ultimate deliverance was going to be given to all of God's people, that, that it was going to happen sometime during their lifetime. That near meant they were about to see it. I mean, ever since God said to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that there was coming a, a day when He was going to raise up a, a prophet like Moses who would reveal the ultimate truth of God to them, they were hoping that every next prophet was going to be that one. Is it Elijah? Is it Elisha? Is it Daniel? Who is it? Is it Isaiah? And it, it, it wasn't fully the prophet that Moses was speaking of until it was Christ. Ever since God said to David that from David would come an everlasting king to finally rule over his people in righteousness forever, they'd been hoping that every next king would be the one. Is it Solomon? It wasn't until it was Christ. And in the same way, with, with every day of trouble, they hoped that the day of the Lord's deliverance would be the final and ultimate one for them right then and there. And they were right to hope in that way, right? They were right to live their lives, not in, not in a cynical, doubting kind of hope, but in an eager anticipation, expectation that God's ultimate purposes were about to be fulfilled, that His ultimate deliverance would, would be imminent at any time. And that's how we have to live our lives too. Not fixated on either the trials or the treasures of this world but living in eager anticipation of the final day of God's ultimate judgment and deliverance as if it could very well happen at any time because it could. And that's what the day of the Lord refers to in the Bible. The Old Testament prophets spoke of it. Jesus spoke of it in His day. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus was pointing His disciples forward, ahead to this same coming day of the Lord. When this would happen, He said, this is when the Son of Man comes in glory. All the angels will come with Him. And then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people, one from another, as a, sep as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and he'll place the goats on his left the goats referring to unbelieving unrepentant people the sheep referring to his chosen people and then he goes on to describe how he's going to bring eternal judgment to bear on the goats while at the same time he ushers his sheep into the everlasting rest of eternal life with him that's the day of the lord that's coming with the coming of the lord that's the sure hope. That's the absolutely certain expectation that God points us toward all throughout His living, active, God-breathed Word. It's that coming day when Jesus is going to return in all of His glory and pour out final judgment on all His enemies in ultimate triumph over all of them and then ensure ultimate redemption, salvation, deliverance 
eternally for all of his people. Here, in verses 15 and 16 of Obadiah's prophecy, the first emphasis is on the ultimate triumph over the enemies of God that God's going to achieve on this day of the Lord. And he specifies how his justice will operate when judgment is poured out on his enemies. And the rule of justice that's going to be enacted is is spelled out here, but also all throughout the Scriptures. And it's summed up here in verse 15 this way, As you have done, so shall it be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Everything wrong will be made right. This is a simple principle. And it's based on the reality of God's creation, and especially the value of human life having been made in God's image. And it's also based on the righteousness of God's own holy character. According to God, in this world that He has made, the punishment must always fit the crime. That's the principle. That's how it works. So, way back in Exodus chapter 23, it gets spelled out like this in God's law. He says to the people of Israel, if there's harm... Somebody, if somebody injures somebody else and there's harm done, then you shall pay life for life. And he goes on, eye for an eye. If somebody, somebody's eye gets poked out, then the payment should fit the crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Simple, right? The simple principle of God's justice is there has to be an equivalency between the sin, the crime, and the the penalty that gets imposed because of it. And that same principle, again, based on the reality of the creation that God has made and the righteousness of God's character, it's repeated again in the law of God spelled out in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24. If anyone injures his neighbor... As he has done, it shall be done to him. That's what Obadiah is saying. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Deuteronomy 19 lays out the same thing for the people of God to live by when they come into the promised land. This is the biblical basis of law and justice and jurisprudence. The Latin term for it is lex talionis, which which literally means the law of the tooth after the language of Scripture there, tooth for tooth. And the basic idea is just that when something wrong is done, there's got to be a corrective that corresponds to the severity of the wrong. In the Old Testament, in the society of the nation of Israel that was governed by this principle of justice, the purpose of it was twofold. First, So that judges, magistrates, law courts had an objective way to define just and exact penalties for every level of crime. But secondly, this law principle was supposed to curb and prohibit personal vengeance. Right? People... The people of Israel weren't weren't just supposed to, as as soon as something bad happened to them, to take matters into their own hands whenever a wrong was done. So see, this principle is not a principle for, it's not a rule for, for your personal life. 
If someone does something to you, you get to do something back to them, right? No, that's not how it works. This is a rule for societies. And societies require judges and courts to deal with things that have been done wrong. And this, see, this is how God has designed it to work in this world. Societies have to be governed by authorities who are instituted by God and appointed by Him. That's what Paul says in Romans 13, right? And they're appointed by God to bear the sword, Paul says. Which just means that God has appointed governing authorities over every society to enforce justice this way. According to this biblical lex talionis principle, where punishments are supposed to correspond and and fit the crimes. And that means that citizens in this society, we're, we're not supposed to take matters into our own hands when wrong is done against us, right? If someone steals your lawnmower, you don't just get to go and steal something of equal value of theirs, That's not how it's supposed to work, right? If someone is murdered, their family isn't free in God's design and in God's justice to go and kill the murderer on their own. Or let alone take the life of someone in their family just because someone they loved has been taken from them. God has instituted governing authorities for that purpose. And this is why Jesus tells His disciples, right, in Matthew chapter 5, for example... Look, if somebody smacks you in the face, you don't get to smack them back. In, in fact, you turn the other cheek. See? Don't take vengeance into your own hands, especially when it comes to personal offenses against you. Jesus says we are to love our enemies. We are to pray for those who persecute us, not persecute them back. We are to forgive those who sin against us, not try to impose justice on our own, We're to repay evil with good. Someone takes your outer garment from you, give them the inner one too, because they might be cold, Jesus says. So these are the kinds of things that Jesus tells us to do in directing our personal lives in Matthew 5 and 6. This is the ethic that he prescribes for his disciples, for his church. And at the same time, He wills for justice to be operative in this world through the state, through the civil authorities. So he doesn't want the church taking the sword of retributive justice into its hand and going out and and imposing justice in the world against evildoers. That's not what the church is for. Neither does he want the civil government running the church. Because Jesus is the Lord of the church. And they operate according to different principles and ethics. And so when wrong is done in this world, even to us, we forgive, we bless, we pray for, we turn the other cheek, and we leave justice to the civil authorities, which of course brings the question to mind, well, well, what about when the civil authorities fail miserably? That never happens, does it? What, what about when the civil authorities outright refuse to be just and define justice according to God's law and enforce real justice? That happens all the time. It happened in Obadiah's day with Edom. Well, Paul's answer to that question in the New Testament to Christians living in the Roman Empire where justice failed all the time 
It's in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Very simple. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Walk by faith, Paul says. Now he's quoting Deuteronomy 32 there. And so the same thing applied in the Old Testament where the civil authorities fail, and they will fail. Never avenge yourself, because you can leave it to the wrath of God by living in faith in the reality that He is the judge of the whole earth, and vengeance belongs to Him, and He will repay. You don't have to worry about the wrong being made right when God is the judge of the whole earth. And that's what God is promising to the nation of Judah here in the book of Obadiah. Look, Edom's going to pay. Edom's going to answer for their sins. God's going to deal with them justly and the punishment will fit the crime. As they have done, it will be done to them. Their deeds will come back onto their own heads, tooth for tooth. And in verse 15, then God is extending that same guarantee of divine justice to all the nations, and to the whole world. The Son of Man will return in all His glory, all of the angels and saints of heaven with Him, and He will gather all the nations before Him, including this one. He's the judge of the whole earth, and He will judge all His enemies and usher all His own into their eternal rest. So when evil is done to us and when justice fails us in this world, understand this, every impulse that we have, and I have them just as much as you do, every impulse that we have to avenge ourselves is a fleshly impulse. And it's born out of unbelief. It's born out of a failure to trust that God is just and that vengeance belongs to Him and that there is coming a day when He will repay and He will redress every single wrongdoing. And He will judge all of His enemies in His sovereign and in His faithful time. And surely of all human beings, we who have been given peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? We whose sins have been paid for by the blood that Jesus shed sacrificially on the cross, we who have been forgiven and justified and reconciled because God poured all of His judgment and wrath against our sins. He poured it out onto His only innocent and holy and righteous and pure only begotten Son. Jesus has delivered us from the wrath of God that is to come, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1. So we of all people should know that God always deals with sin justly because He dealt with our sin by pouring all of His wrath out on Jesus so that He might also deal with us very, very mercifully. And so the ethic is, As our Heavenly Father is towards us, so we must be towards one another. And towards those who sin against us, and slander us, and persecute us. How must we be? Merciful. Peaceful. 
entrusting justice and vengeance to God and praying that His mercy might even extend to our enemies because it was lavished on us when we were His enemies. Because Jesus Himself is our peace. And He's the one in whom the fullness of all of God's divine justice and all of the fullness of God's divine love and mercy, He's the one in, in whom they, they meet. And it's that aspect of the holy character and nature of God. It's His undeserved mercy, His unconditional redeeming love that now Obadiah wants to turn to and focus us on in the rest of the book, which is now the pinnacle of this prophecy. This is the grand summit of the mountain. This is everything he's been pushing for to give us a grand and majestic view of all of the great purposes of redemption that this sovereign, holy, just, merciful God has enacted since eternity past. So, as God's people, we should be encouraged by the reality that God is sovereign and God is just and that God will triumph over all of His enemies and over all unrighteousness and evil and wickedness on that coming day of the Lord. That ought to give us comfort and hope and we should also rejoice and find great soul-sustaining hope in the sure and certain truth that on that coming day of the Lord, God will deliver His people. You won't be forgotten, and you won't be left alone. Deliverance is the great theme of the rest of the book, verses 17 to 21. And so again, remember the context. Remember, Obadiah is proclaiming these words of prophecy during that horrible time when so many of God's people had been persecuted, put to death, hauled off into captivity in Babylon. They were a people right then and there who were struggling with hope, right? Because everything they'd ever known had been ripped away from them and, and torn to pieces. The, the walls of their golden city, Jerusalem, had been breached and torn down and the Babylonian soldiers had flooded in and, and they'd ravaged the women and the children and they'd slaughtered the men and they'd torn every house and building to the ground, including the great temple of Solomon that, that other kings and queens and princes came from all around to see because it was so magnificent and now it was gone. And the Babylonians had even set fire to all of the ruins so it could never be rebuilt and and they'd even gone then outside of the cities and, and, and set all the fields around Jerusalem on fire in order to render all of the, the ground fallow, scorched earth, so that anyone hiding out there wouldn't even be able to, to grow any crops or food to survive on. Things were desperate for them. Things were dire. The people of Judah were living in despair. They didn't have anything in this world. They had nothing of this creation to anchor any reasonable kind of hope to. At all. So Obadiah has told them now that in response, God's going to judge their enemies, especially the Edomites, who had a hand in it all. They aided and abetted the enemy. They stood by, they watched, and they cheered as the Babylonians did their worst. And then the Edomites ran in and took advantage and plundered Jerusalem once the walls had been breached. And then they stood by in the roadways. And if any Jewish people were trying to escape and run for their lives, they'd snag them, they'd nab them, hand them over to the Babylonians. 
wicked, evil, heartless cruelty. And God's been clear, he's going to repay the Edomites. And you can imagine, though, that that assurance that the Edomites are going to get theirs would have only gone so far in terms of laying a foundation of hope for the people of Judah who had lost so much and were living in such conditions. So now, now Obadiah pushes for the summit. Now comes the pinnacle of the prophecy as he proclaims to this desperate people this message that assures them of God's deliverance for them. His ultimate triumph as he promises to them a new Jerusalem, a new Mount Zion, a future inheritance, not just of what they had before, but of an everlasting kingdom. That must have been pretty tough with Jerusalem having been reduced to a pile of smoldering rubble for them even to conceive of a, a new city. Put their hope in, in that kind of a promise must have been tough. But here in verse 17, Obadiah declares with absolute confidence the word of the Lord that in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be made holy again and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The word escape there, if your Bible reads that way in verse 17, in this context is better translated deliverance, salvation. In Mount Zion, which is the place in Jerusalem where the temple was built, There shall be deliverance and there will be holiness. Or it will once again be a holy place. And not the defiled and desecrated and destroyed devastation that it had been reduced to by the Babylonians and the Edomites. So think about this city of Jerusalem, right? Way back in the book of Exodus as the people were being led out of Egypt and making their way towards the promised land before they ever got there. Moses knew by the word of God and he prophesied about a place that would be a sanctuary for the people of God to dwell with him forever. That's what sanctuary means. It means a place where you're there and God's there with you and so you have refuge and you have shelter and you have provision. And Moses knew that's what was going to come. That's what God was going to give. Exodus 15, he said, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and you have guided them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. And you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your own abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And so the Lord will reign there forever and ever. And it was in David's day then that the place which would become Jerusalem was captured from the Jebusites and made to be the capital city of Israel. And the first temple was built there by David's son Solomon on Mount Zion, a place where then God came and dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in that temple, in the midst of his people as a sanctuary for them. But... All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets over and over and over warned the people that they were breaking God's covenant, breaking God's laws, sinning against Him, 
acting immorally and idolatrously. They were worshiping false gods and idols, and, and they were even installing them in time in the temple of God on Mount Zion. And there were horrific pagan practices going on right there in God's house, in His temple, in His presence. And the prophets were warning the people again and again that if they wouldn't repent of all this, God's judgment would come upon them, and then it did. And just before it did, just before the Babylonians showed up, God, in, in the book of Ezekiel, God, God left the temple. The, the, the cloud of the glory of God's presence that was dwelling in the Holy of Holies rose up and moved out through the courtyards and out the east gate and over the Mount of Olives. And it was, he, he was gone, leaving the temple, leaving the city, not as a sanctuary anymore, but... but but alone and vulnerable to the coming invasion and the absolute devastation that followed. So see, what got destroyed, what, what they lost, wasn't just their earthly homes, wasn't just their earthly city, wasn't even just their earthly temple or way of life in this world. It was something far more precious that they lost far more significant. It was the sanctuary of God's dwelling in their midst. Because even when they would rebuild the temple, He didn't come back in. So the eternal, almighty, holy God of creation, the great I Am, living among them, giving sanctuary by His presence with them, pouring out blessings and salvation and protection and deliverance and atonement and holiness for their sanctification. That's what they'd lost. And that's what Obadiah is proclaiming here, will be restored. Not just a deliverance from captivity in Babylon, but a restoration of the sanctuary of God's presence and blessings and holiness in the midst of his people. So around uh, 70 years after the horrible devastation by the Babylonians and the Edomites, around 537 B.C., many of the exiles who had been living in Babylon got to go home to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel as their leader. This is the book of Ezra in the Old Testament scriptures. The book of Nehemiah, records how they started rebuilding the walls of the city. Ezra says that in around 515 B.C. they started to rebuild a temple there. But the temple they rebuilt was, was a shadow of the magnificent temple that Solomon built. It was kind of this rickety little wooden thing in comparison. And most importantly, of course, the presence of God's glory never came back to that second temple. I mean, the people were called to worship God there anyways, to live holy lives there anyways, but they, they continued to struggle with sin without God in their midst. And the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, talks about all the unholiness in the lives and in the worship of the people at the closing of the Old Testament Scriptures. So see, the promise hadn't yet been fully fulfilled of a restoration of Jerusalem and the sanctuary of God's presence and the deliverance and the holiness that would come from His dwelling in their midst. There was a partial fulfillment, but not the fullness. So then we come next to the New Testament, 400 years after the book of Malachi was written. 
And we see that in the time of Jesus, the, the temple had been renovated architecturally by King Herod. And it was pretty impressive again, architecturally. But still, the presence of God's glory had never returned. And in Jesus' day, the worship that was going on there, presided over by the Sadducees, and the life of the Jewish people religiously in Jerusalem, governed by the Pharisees, it was a mess. It wasn't honoring God, it wasn't pleasing to God. Jesus was always critical of what was going on, constantly railing against the heartlessness of the worship and the hypocrisy of the leaders and the godlessness that was just rampant among the people. And all of it culminated then, right, 33 years after the birth of Jesus, in they're all scheming together to have Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, murdered, nailed to a cross, right there in Jerusalem. And then, what happened? In another act of divine judgment against the godlessness and the wickedness that had been festering in Jerusalem and the temple once again, 70 A.D., 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, then the Roman army stormed in and destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem once again. And to this day, 2023, right? That building has never been rebuilt. So what what of the promise? What of the restoration of the sanctuary of God's abode and, and the everlasting deliverance for His people that would come from there? What about the hope that Obadiah and and the other prophets held out of an everlasting kingdom of God's saved and redeemed people dwelling with Him in eternal peace and righteousness as He ruled and reigned from Mount Zion? What about that? Well, by now you, you know the answer already because we've studied it together so many times before in the New Testament Scriptures. And so you know That in John chapter 1, John tells us that the eternal Word of God, who is God, who was in the beginning with God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and, and tabernacled among us, John says. That his body, his flesh, was the ultimate tent and temple of, and, and place of meeting and dwelling place of God among men. That Jesus is the ultimate sanctuary, right? And you know that in John chapter 2, Jesus himself told the Pharisees that they were going to tear down the temple of God and that he would rebuild it three days later and they were confused because he wasn't talking about the building, he was talking about his body, John says, torn down and crucified and then resurrected on the third day. And you know that both Paul and Peter in 1 Peter and in Ephesians reveal to us that the true and ultimate temple, the ultimate well-built house of God, Paul calls it, isn't the one that's made out of wood and stone. It's the one that's made out of living stones, human souls that have been delivered from the wrath of God that is to come by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And that Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple, rejected by men, approved by God, upon which the whole structure is being built on the foundation of the Word of God revealed in the prophets and the great gospel of redemption proclaimed by the apostles. And you know 
as we meditated on it a few weeks ago together at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 19, you know that the church that is the bride of Christ, all of the people, Old Testament and New, who have believed God and been justified through faith in His Word, that it's pictured like a big giant temple city, all decked out in the pure and pristine beauty of God's holiness, all dressed up by God, for the eternal wedding to His Son in the garments of righteousness and faithfulness and obedience made perfect as the eternal sanctuary where He will dwell with us forever, right? The the temple city pictured there in Revelation 21, that's that's not a picture of a physical place where the people of God will dwell as the bride of Christ. It's a picture of the bride of the saved and forgiven and justified and sanctified and glorified people as the place where God will dwell. That's the hope, see? That's the hope. Not another earthly temple made out of wood and stone that can become defiled again, that can get torn down again. Not the earthly Jerusalem where unbelief and idolatry can fester and earthly enemies can invade and threaten and destroy. No, 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 no. The ultimate hope is the new Jerusalem. Do you remember from Revelation 21, that word new? We read it together again in another passage in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning. It's that that Greek word kainos. The new Jerusalem is a kainos Jerusalem, right? Not a refurbished Jerusalem. Not a renewed Jerusalem. Not a renovated Middle Eastern city. It's kainos new. And the Kainos New Jerusalem is a Jerusalem of a new kind entirely. That's what that word means. It's the kind proclaimed in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, but you, you haven't come to an earthly Mount Zion, he says. You have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to the innumerable angels in festal gathering in the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and you have come to God Himself, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus who is the mediator of a, a new kainos covenant, new and better, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's the hope that Obadiah is talking about. A new and heavenly Jerusalem, a new and heavenly Mount Zion, new of a completely unimaginably different and better kind. Just like you who have been made a new creation in Christ Jesus or of a different kind than you were. You've been raised with Him to newness of life. So the city of the living God that the redeemed people of God will enjoy dwelling in His presence forever, that city is the people of God. Understand? It's not just where we'll be, it's what we are. As those who have been made perfect by the sprinkled blood of Jesus and indwelt by His abiding presence forever. That's the hope. He's the hope. He's the sanctuary. The Christ and His kingdom and salvation and inheritance is the great hope that is ultimately being revealed in seed form in the closing chapters or verses rather of Obadiah's prophecy. Verse 18 talks about 
ultimate victory of the house of Joseph over the house of Esau. And the imagery of fire that's used there is envisioning the blazing holiness of God's justice, incinerating everything that it sets itself against and that sets itself against Him. It's envisioning all of God's enemies being represented by this one little nation of the Edomites. As is done to them, so shall be done to every one of God's enemies. There will be no possibility of defeat for God's people. That's the hope. No matter what's going on in this world, no matter what enemies are set against you because they're set against God Himself, He will prevail. He will triumph. And they will be no more. Paul writes again in the Word of God in the New Testament where where God unveils more and more about what he's alluding to in the Old Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that in spite of all of the trials and the sufferings and the sorrows that we will inevitably experience and endure in this world, that we can be assured that the ultimate triumph is ours in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who in Christ leads us always in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So see, for the Christian, the decisive victory that we hope for is the victory of Jesus over all of the enemies of God, most importantly sin and death, which brings eternal life and holiness. Jesus is the victory. Jesus has defeated not just Edom, He's defeated Satan He's defeated death itself. Jesus, Colossians 2.15, disarmed the satanic and demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's the victory. And in Him, ours is the victory. So in Revelation 12, John heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives even to death. Jesus is the victory, and in Jesus the victory is ours over Satan himself. So the historical victory that God achieved over Edom was what we call a proleptic victory. It was was a divinely ordained foreshadowing. It was an appointed anticipation of the much greater and ultimate victory that was to come. And that's what everything in the Old Testament is. It's a divine foreshadowing and historical reality of the greater realities that would historically come in Christ. That's the hope. Jesus is the hope. Jesus has already vanquished death and the devil. The the final victory is already at hand because it's already in His hand. And so then are the great eternal and everlasting blessings that will come when ultimate judgment and ultimate deliverance comes with His return. And that's verses 19 to 21. Obadiah envisions a, a coming time of restored peace, unity, where the kingdom of God's people will no longer be divided. 
where His people will no longer be scattered to the ends of the earth. No more exile. No more division north and south of the kingdom. No more hostility between them. That's what these verses are about. And again, there was a partial fulfillment of this. This this prophesied hope of unity. Partial fulfillment in Old Testament times. And into the times of the Maccabees between Malachi and Jesus. And and then into Jesus' time and in the New Testament. But the ultimate fulfillment wouldn't come, wouldn't, wouldn't begin until Jesus came. So Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says that in Christ Jesus, the Gentiles who had been far off from God and had animosity with the Jews have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for He Himself is our peace. And He's the one who has made the two, Jews and Gentiles, He's made them one. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, Paul says. And created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. All the unity that God's promising between the people of God here in Obadiah applies to people from every tribe and tongue and nation in the fulfillment that Christ would bring. So it's not just a peace between the tribes of Israel. It's a peace between people from every nation who are in Christ. For through Him we all have access to the Father. By one spirit, Paul says. Everything in the Old Testament is proleptic, is anticipating this great blessing in the new. And in Christ, this one people, Paul calls us the Israel of God in Galatians 6. And he says, we're going to inherit not just a strip of land in the Middle East, from Zarephath to the Negev, from the Mediterranean to the Shvelah to the Jordan. No, we're going to inherit a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to inherit all of it. We'll get that plus the rest. Right? It's, it's, as, if, it's as if your parents point you to something in the house that you're going to inherit one day. Some trinket, some family heirloom. And then it becomes obvious to you that the way that you inherit the heirloom in the house is is because ultimately you inherit the house and all that is in it. New heavens and new earth, that's going to be our inheritance. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, verses 13 to 19, that the people in the Old Testament who were living in that promised land that God gave them in the Middle East, says they all died there without actually having received all that was promised. Isn't that interesting? Because the things that had been given to them were just foreshadowings of the greater promise. The better country, Hebrews 11.16 calls it, that is the heavenly one. The new heavens, the new earth that God reveals in the New Testament and assures us is our hope in Christ Jesus. Think what you're going to get. It makes what you're going to lose pale by comparison. So God's purpose is to unite His people in complete and ultimate and uninterruptible peace for all of eternity in the ultimate promised land of the new heavens and the new earth where He will dwell in our midst and in us and He will be our God and we will be His people and He will be our sanctuary forever. That's the hope. Jesus Christ is the hope. 
His kingdom shall never come to an end. His dominion will endure forever because His kingship and righteousness and peace will know no limits, either temporally or spatially. His kingship shall be over the whole world. Verse 21. That's the hope. Psalm 98 sings, Let the rivers clap their hands. Because they'll be the kingship of Christ. Let the hills sing for joy because his, his kingship will extend everywhere. Because he comes to judge the whole earth. And he will judge all the world with righteousness and all the peoples with equity. So let everything rejoice. And Obadiah has no doubt, right? Obadiah lacks no confidence in the absolutely certain hope of the ultimate triumph of God. The kingdom, the kingship shall be the Lord's. Verse 21 sums it all up over everything because the victory is already His. G. Campbell Morgan said, There are so many things that we cannot understand in our world today, but the one absolute certainty is that all these things are under the government of God. And the fact remains then that the kingdom shall be His because in this sense it already is His. That's the hope. As we toil, even now, through the trials and tribulations of this life and in this world, He's the hope. The King has come. The victory's already been won. And He will return. And the final trumpet will sound. And John's words in Revelation 11 will be realized. The seventh angel will blow the trumpet and there will be loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. That's the hope. He's our hope. Nothing in this world. Amen? Let's pray and then let's sing all hail the power of Jesus' name who is our hope. Our God and our Father, We ask that you open our eyes and that you open our minds and we ask that you do whatever it takes to rip our hands off of the things of this world and to keep our focus off of the treasures and the trials of this world and keep us fixed on Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith that we might run with endurance and finish the race well. Father, help us know that our hope isn't in this world but as in the new heavens and the new earth where only righteousness will dwell and in the victory that is already ours in Christ and in Him and in the sanctuary of His presence with us forever. And so, Father, as we sing His praises, fill us with hope and help that hope to help us endure and to continue to run and glorify You in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.